Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Oh man, that's so sweet. Thank you. That's, that's humbling, man. Thank you, man. So sweet. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Oh my gosh, look at y'all. This is amazing. Look at this. This is so good. Um, I'm humble. That's amazing. Andrew Stanley is hilarious. Your pastor is so cool. This is awesome that so many people are here prioritizing your marriages. Come on, praise God, because this is fantastic. And we want to send our love to every single location uh, around the world, the brand new International Space Station, Lake Point Campus, even now. Um, really, really cool. Um, my wife, Jenny, is right here. We've been married. This April will be 20 years for us that we've been married. Jenny, I love you. We have five kids, as you heard. Our oldest is 18. Our youngest is six. So we had a, ch- a child very young. And then we had a child very old. So uh, sex is hard because we are exhausted in the evenings. And in the afternoons, there's always someone banging on the door. So we don't have any of our kids here with us. Praise God for that. And uh, we're excited to talk about marriage. It's such a powerful subject. And the Lord loves it, as you heard, the Bible beginning and ending with marriage. Uh, But also the devil understands how significant it is. And the devil understands that uh, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And the devil understands that God wants to use the home as an absolute powerhouse for evangelism, that God wants to use your marriage, your family, your, uh, the table in your house as an extension of the kingdom of God in this world. And so, of course, he's going to come against it. Of course, he's going to seek to redefine it. God built it, God created it, and he's the one who gets to tell us how to use it, but the devil is coming for it. So if you feel like, man, marriage is challenging and it's, 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 it feels like it's a battle, it is. But fortunately, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory because God always leads us in triumph in Christ to diffuse the aroma of Christ in every place through us. I want to talk to you about the 10 coins of marriage. The Ten Coins of Marriage. Luke chapter 15, if you have a copy of the scriptures. This is a familiar stretch. And you know it well because it's the the series of parables that culminates in the prodigal son, which is the part of the parable we know the best, right? And that's the one that like gets, and the Oscar goes to, right? The son coming back from from the far off land and the father waiting to run to restore him. That's the part that, that gets all the attention. But did you know that in us focusing on that parable only, we're missing a th- the full story? Because it's not just a single parable, it's, it's three parables all formed together as one. It's not just about a lost son. It starts out with a lost sheep, and then in the middle is a lost coin. And that's the one that we're going to focus in on. But want to make sure we have in our heads that this is all in Jesus' attempt to help 
get the religious leaders to see their hypocrisy and how uh, phony and full of pretension they were because they were complaining that he was willing to eat with sinners. Andrew talked a moment ago about eating by himself at restaurants, which is exactly what Jesus would have had to do if he wasn't willing to eat with sinners. Because when they asked the question, why do you eat with those sinners? They didn't see themselves as sinners. And if I were Jesus, I would have answered it with some sass. You know what I'm saying? Because if I didn't eat with sinners, it would be Jesus' table for one every meal, right? Because I couldn't eat with any of you guys. But thank God that we have a Savior who's willing to touch our sinful humanity and is not afraid to be associated with us. And so in response to that, he helped them to see what the kingdom of God is like. And he told these three stories that all build together. And the whole point of the story was to get the reaction that you don't get if you just read the prodigal son one. Because if you just read the prodigal son, you're like, oh my gosh, the father goes and, and, and forgives him and everybody lives happily ever after. Well, except for that older brother guy. He was kind of the worst. But, but man, that felt really good. But hold on a second. A shepherd loses a sheep, goes out and searches for it. And when he finds it, he brings it back on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he gets back, he calls his friends. He calls his family, old ladies, little babies. He's calling everybody, come over and celebrate with me for the sheep that I lost has been found. And then he tells the story that we're going to focus in on today. Or what woman, <clears throat> having 10 silver coins, someone say 10 coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, what does she do? She calls her friends and neighbors together saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then from there, he tells the story of the prodigal son. And he tells the story of a young son going to Vegas and spending everything he has on prostitutes and gambling, and, and then he falls on hard times and realizes how good he had it back at home, and so he comes home. What's interesting is Jesus has introduced a pattern and then broken the pattern. He's introduced a pattern and then broken the pattern. The pattern was something gets lost and everyone searches and everyone scrambles the jets and the rescue operation happens. And then what's lost gets recovered. With this third story, nobody goes. I believe one of the reasons for this is Jesus is trying to get the religious leaders to see they failed at the job of compassion. They failed at the job of caring. They are the elder brother who were not doing what they should do uh, in their position of leadership in looking for the lost, in looking for those who are broken and in need of God's grace. But thanks be to God that Jesus is a better, older brother, that he comes to us in our sin. He comes to us in our brokenness. He comes to us in our need for salvation and rescues us. But because the story is connected to marriage, we're going to use it for those purposes. As I explained to you, this, the 10 coins of marriage. But Father, we ask that you would speak to us when it comes to our relationships with our wife, with our husband, help us to understand that not only do you have a plan for marriage, but you have a plan for our marriage. Not the marriage that it, that it should be, 
the marriage that it is today. Thank you that in your hands, even dead things can live. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The year was 1972, and NASA was launching its second-to-last moon mission. I'm a big NASA nerd. Anybody else here? Anybody? Anybody into the? Yeah, okay. We, we, by the way, an unmanned spacecraft landed on the moon yesterday, so we're kind of back. It's kind of a big deal. Don't call it a comeback, though. But uh, 72 was Apollo 16, and uh, three men were on this mission, Ken Mattingly, Charlie Duke, and John Young. And these three uh, got to be the second to the last of the Apollo program. And there was all sorts of stuff planned for this 11-day mission. And it involved driving a car around on the moon because men were in charge, right? So what else were they going to do? We've been to the moon. It was successful. What are we going to do now? Let's bring a car. Let's go for a drive. And so that's what they did. And it was day two of the 11-day mission. They were on their way. Everything was going well. They learned a lot from Apollo 13, and so things had gotten better and, and tighter. And, and so here they are going. And, and uh, Ken Mattingly, part of the crew, says to his, his two uh, friends, guys, I got to go. And they're like, okay. And then he's like, no, no, I got to go. Okay, now think about it. You're, you're flying to space in a spacecraft the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. That's the inside compartment with two other people, and now you got to go number two. This is, Houston, we got a problem, right? <laughs> it wouldn't be so bad if they would have let them have like a toilet like you have on the International Space Station. There is a toilet you seat by yourself into. It's got suction. It just takes care of everything, kind of, you know, shoots it into the vacuum of space where it turns into poopsicles, and we're good. But <laughs> not so during the Apollo days. Because this was a $24 billion project, $152 billion in today's currency. And so NASA needed to understand everything it could and learn everything it could. So that meant analyzing stool samples from day one, comparing them to stool samples from day 10, and no, trying to figure out what, what nutrients were lost along the way. So they were, they, were not turning, they were turning over every stone. And so NASA insisted on all fecal matter being returned at the end of the mission. Someone said, gross. So now, stay with me. You're flying inside the capsule. How do you go to the bathroom? It's a problem. Uh, what they would do is they'd have to take off their entire flight suit, be completely naked, and they had these bags, like the bank deposit bags we used to use when you deposit, like with a little seal strip, right? Only it had two seal strips, and you would stick that thing on your bum, and while flying around, and your, your two friends are just hiding and making themselves as small as possible, because you don't have any gravity for it to go down the back. You have to like massage it down. <laughs> so Ken Mattingly is going to the bathroom, going through all this ordeal, right? And, and, and he finishes and he tells his friends like, ollie, ollie, oxen free, come out, come out wherever you are. <clears throat> and he gets his flight suit zipped back up and then he realizes his wedding ring's gone. And he's like, oh my gosh, there's only one place it could be, the bag. So he goes searching through the bag. It's not there. 
He's like, oh my gosh, I can't come home without my wedding ring, right? My wife's gonna think I hooked up with a Martian or something, right? I, oh, sure, right? He's like, you see what I'm saying? So he's like, he's desperate to find it. So every spare moment for the rest of the mission, he's searching for it, never finds it. And that, by the way, is the appropriate emotion for us to bring to Luke 15, to this second of these three parables where Jesus says, what about a woman who has lost a coin, having 10? She now finds out she only has nine. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on this book of the Bible, says, when a Jewish girl married, she began to wear a headband of 10 silver coins to signify that she was now a wife. It was the Jewish version of the modern wedding ring, and it would have been considered a calamity for her to lose one of those coins. Many commentaries point out that these coins would have come from the dowry. That is to say, the price her father paid securing this marriage. So now you have this connection to her father, this connection to her husband, and she pulls out this headband one day and realizes one of the coins is missing. And what does she do? She doesn't go, eh, I got nine. I got most of them, right? I have a a quorum of coins. We're good. No, she's desperate to find it because she wants a full crown. Good is not good enough. What's the point? The point is I believe that God has a crown for you, not just even one crown. The Bible talks about many different crowns that God wants to give to us, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. There's a crown that God wants to give to you. That is to say then there's a reward he wants to give you for how you stewarded your marriage. God has a crown for your relationship. The Bible connects the idea of a crown and the idea of marriage in Proverbs 12, verse 4, explicitly when it says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. That is to say that we can, based on how we approach our marriage, based on how we approach being a husband or being a wife, we can let the the coins fall from the crown. So what would these coins be? What would they represent? What what, what could they be figuratively? Well, with some imagination, I jotted down 10 things that could be the 10 coins of marriage. And what we must do is ask ourselves the question, have we let these coins come loose? Where in our lives have we allowed rottenness to seep in instead of righteousness in our relationship? Number one, the first coin is curiosity. The coin of curiosity is important to keep affixed in our headband and not to let come loose. Why? Curiosity is a superpower in life, the superpower in business, superpower in leadership, to be at a place of curiosity. All these great ideas come from, from staying curious. I mean, didn't Jesus himself say that we should be like little children to enter the kingdom of God, to wonder, to ask good questions? Well, this is a lifeblood when it comes to marriage. Because the easiest thing to do is to respond to angry emotion in our spouse and to respond by radiating back what you're getting, where you can tell your spouse is ticked, you can tell something's just kind of coming you know, out of them a little bit, and, you, and your response to radiate that back, to mirror back exactly what you're getting. The better thing to do would be to shift into a place of going, I wonder what's under that, remembering that anger is a secondary emotion. And so no doubt there's something below it. My counselor likes to say, the thing below the thing, the thing that's driving the thing. So if when we watch our spouse sort of 
getting triggered or getting hostile, we can shift into a place of curiosity and say to ourselves, I wonder what's causing this. I wonder what's driving this. I wonder where this is all coming from. And I think as well, we can use our imagination and our curiosity <clears throat> to wonder aloud sort of what God's seeking to do in them. I like to imagine, you know, what, what, could, what does God have for Jenny in the future and how can I be a part of her, of her getting there? How can I help her get to where God wants her to be? And creativity is one of the coins that we no doubt need to keep firmly fixed into our marriage. The second is unity. Unity, I mean, we, we know the, the passage. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. It's the passage of primary reference on human marriage and sexuality. It's therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is God's plan, God's idea, God's vision from the very beginning. And of course, it's where we kind of sometimes push back a little bit, right? Because God's imposing his standard. But let's just give him a little bit of respect here, please, right? I know in culture, it's like, well, who are you to say how we should approach this or handle these things? It's like, well, hello, uh, he invented it. <laughs> Isn't it for him to define what he thought of in the first place? And, and of course, people get huffy when God starts to tell us how to live our lives, but we don't have that same level of hostility when it comes to like walking in Home Depot. You go buy a chainsaw, you open up the box, there's a bunch of rules inside. You're like, oh, they don't want me to have any fun. <laughs> no, you're like, well, they don't want you to chop your freaking arm off, right? So why do we give more grace and assume positive intent to Home Depot, but not to God who made us and sent his son Jesus to die for us when we were lost? How about... Hey, you are God in heaven. We are here on earth. We're going to let our words be few. You get to tell us how to live our lives. What am I trying to say? Sex and marriage are God-given, so they should be God-governed as well. And we should be at the humble place of saying, thy will be done, and not arrogantly saying, my will be done. So unity is at the very essence of what God intends, for two to become one. And of course, leaving father and mother, joining this new family, becoming one with our, our partner. But becoming one takes a moment. We say the vow, we consummate the union, bada-bing, bada-boom. It's wonderful. What's, what's, what's the problem, right? The problem is becoming one is relatively easy. Living as one requires whole new levels of sanctification and dying to your flesh. Living as one, choosing to believe it's no longer just Levi and Jenny, it's now the Luscos, that we are one. And so now it's not about what she got to do with money last time, there was a little extra, and so now it's my turn. It's not how many evenings you watch the kids, and so now here it's quid pro quo here. We're not talking about, you know, eye for an eye. What, is that, that, what does that lead to? A bloody mess. Because Moses is a terrible marriage counselor. You got to let Jesus take the wheel. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turns water into wine. I know some of you are Baptists. Wine's better than blood, though. Let me tell you in case you haven't had any. And the eye for an eye thing is oftentimes the standard in marriage. What we need is something different 
entirely, something called grace, where it's not about merited favor, it's unmerited favor. And when we act as one, we are strong in our spouse's weakness. And when they're the weaker vessel, we get to give a little extra for them. When Jenny and I were getting married, some of the best advice we got was from someone who said to me, there's going to come a day when you don't feel like loving her. And that is when it's most important that you do, when we feel it the least. Because remember, God, and I mean, I've read the whole Bible. There's, you know, when I was impressed, but it's, it's long. <laughs> <clears throat> the Bible, I'm going to say this gently, but I'm going to say it. The Bible cares, God cares very little for how you feel. There's, a, there's not a lot of ink spilled about, like, you need to feel like loving God. Where's the psalm that says, feel like worshiping God? No, it, the Bible stresses very little on, on what we feel. It, it stresses very much on what we do and on the way that that can change and inform what we feel. We don't worship God because we feel like worshiping God. We worship God because he is holy, holy, holy. And when we see worship not as a feeling expressed through an action, but as an act of obedience that will oftentimes develop feelings on the back end, we can then approach marriage in the same way, remembering love isn't a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a choice. Love is a verb. Husbands love your wives. And the things that we say when we are betraying that we're thinking of love more as a noun, more of as an inanimate object, we say stupid stuff, right? Like someone said to me one time, Pastor, I just, I fell out of love with my wife. I was like, imagine if you fell out of your truck, what would you do? <laughs> you would get back in it, <laughs> right? We can choose to love when we don't feel it. And that will oftentimes develop the love. And, and, and I have to remember, Levi, the better Jenny is doing, the better you are doing. You're one flesh with her. So you to attack her is useless. For me to love and nourish her is to love and nourish my own self. You need to rip up your separate scorecards and have, have just one scorecard for how the relationship is doing. For whatever you're doing for her, you're doing for yourself, for she is now you. You are one with her. So let's not talk about our, our marriage. Like, it's like, how's the marriage doing? I don't know. It's just not doing so. Like, it's a plant or something. I don't know. I... <laughs> your marriage is you. So do something for your marriage. Unity, seeing yourself as one flesh with someone. That's the second coin. Number three, generosity. Generosity. I mean, the, the whole Bible talks about the power of of, of giving, not keeping, as being the key to receiving. I'm going to say that again slower, because some of you are like, wait a minute, what do you mean? Giving, not keeping, is the key to receiving. And so it is when it comes to marriage. Whatever you want your spouse to give you, oftentimes you choosing to give them that thing that you want is going to be the, the, the key to you receiving what you actually Needs. So generosity, but not just when it comes to money and not just even when it comes to, to what you watch on TV, but generosity when it comes to your emotions, to you being vulnerable with them, just being generous in general, giving to them what you want them to give to you. These are, these are simple but not easy. The coins 
of marriage. Number four, intentionality. Intentionality in believing that your marriage is bespoke, right? Not off the rack. We're not talking H&M here, where God just reached for small, medium, large and handed one out to you. What I made is what I made. It's like going into a, a tailor who's going to make a suit or make a dress that fits every, like one leg's longer than the other. It's just perfectly bespoke just for you. God has a custom calling for your marriage, for the unique culture of your family. Be intentional with it. Don't approach it just based on how it always is and every marriage you've ever seen, but ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to whisper to you, to give you a vision for what your home can be like, for what your marriage is meant to to be in God's hand, for how it's meant to play a part in his kingdom in determining what his vision is for the culture of your home. Intentionality. Number five, humility. Humility in marriage is absolutely it's astounding what it can do, right? I mean, just in all of life, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, a little louder, I can't hear you, to the humble. When we bow up, when we're defiant like that, what happens? God can't get any of his oil on you. You gotta kneel to be anointed. The humility in your marriage you did, and I can't believe you, and why didn't you think it? But hold on. Let's consider ourselves, right? Let's, let's have the spirit of a servant. Greatness in God's kingdom comes, comes through serving. So when we have the humility to repent when we were wrong, whoo, that's, that's sexy. I'm telling you what. That's, that's power, right? And, and I think just learning to recalibrate ourselves from the culture's values to the kingdom values, we're in this world, but not of the world. And it's, we, 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 our, our problem is we've grown up watching all these movies and TV shows, right? And that's a train wreck to form our values from the world's values. That'd be like trying to learn how to drive by watching The Fast and the Furious. I mean, just, just <laughs> But that's what we're doing when we, attra- when we try to approach uh, our, our relationships based on the latest rom-com or Netflix show or, or a romance novel. And so we have to have God's word change our mind in how we think about things. Humility is, is, is sexy. We have to think about that. Like, because some, some people, what we're, what, we're, what we're craving, what we want our spouse to be like is just a reflection of the world's value system, right? Even just how it works in dating, who we choose at times. We, we date people before we're married that we, we know are not God's best for us. But we're thinking in our, in our minds, but they're hot. And I'm like, so is hell. You know what I'm saying? Like, there has to be. <laughs> Humility coin. Number six, the intensity coin. Intensity. What makes something intense? It not being diluted. What makes something intense? It, it's something being concentrated. Why will tequila get you drunker faster than beer, right? Don't use either of them to get drunk. But why, why would it? Because the tequila is not diluted. There's less water and it's concentrated. Thus, it's more powerful. Well, the Bible compares sexuality to a fine wine in the, in the book, The Song of Solomon. If we want our, our marriage bed to be intoxicating, to be worthy of art, to be worthy of song, it needs to not be diluted. What will dilute our, our, our sexual fountain? Well, the water's running through the streets, we're told, in Song of Solomon 4.12, we want it to be enclosed, our sexual love. We want it to be a spring shut up 
a fountain sealed. We don't want our marital love to be diluted. So what, what do we need to do? We need to make the covenant that Job made. I will not look upon a young woman with lust. If what we're scrolling on and what we're watching on our screens, if what we're seeing is allowing us and drawing us into fantasies, hey, it's cool, I can look but not touch. What are you doing? You're diluting your sexual love. You're teaching yourself to not be aroused and stimulated by your wife. Think about it. If, if you don't eat for a week, it doesn't matter what you see, you're gonna be ravenous with it. I mean, don't feed your dog for a week, you'll wake up with him eating your cheek, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> appetite arises. So, so if, 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 if the only breasts you see are your wife's breasts, I'm telling you, they're gonna look pretty good, right? I'm not, that's not a knock on either of you because you're, you're no peach either, but you see what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> deprivation will do crazy things. You want your sex life to get better? Stop looking at porn. And stop letting your, letting your eyes wander. Let, you, let it be the only thing. You will find whole new levels of being turned on if that's the only source of being turned on. Somebody, I'm preaching better than you're listening. All right, intensity. And then number seven, community. What about the community coin? Some of you, 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 you pick up your headband today and you're like, oh, dang, the community coin's gone. What's the community coin? Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Tim Keller pointed out that this verse might not mean what you think it means, like the Princess Bride. I don't think that verse means what you think it means, right? Because I've always thought, oh, that's so nice. It's saying the brothers are, brothers are amazing. I've always thought this verse is saying the power of being a brother, because a brother is born for diversity. No, Keller pointed out, no, no. <laughs> Family has to come together in trial. Brothers are good for adversity. You've got to talk to your family, uh, right? All your siblings and crazy uncles. When there's a crisis, that's when family all comes together. He goes, friends are good at all times, <laughs> right? Friends are good all the time. Family, yeah, you've got to talk to them when there's something you've got to deal with, right? So there is some truth to the, the fact that, that friends are the family you choose, but choose carefully. Choose carefully because nothing will impact the outcome of your life like those that you choose to do life with. As you spend time with people, you become habituated to their value system. It's going to creep in. It's going gonna, it's gonna to impact you. I think about the 10 and the 2 they used to teach us in driver's ed. I understand they ditched that, right? What is it, like 9 and 1 now or something like that? I don't know. Whatever. 10 and 2 is better because of my illustrations. So let's, let's stick with it. <laughs> there were 10 spies that had a critical, negative, evil spirit to them when they went into the promised land. There were only two, the minority report. There were only two that said God can do it. There were two that said it doesn't matter what enemy comes against us. The, the bigger the giants are, the harder they're going to fall. Come on, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? <laughs> Listening to the 10 is what caused a whole generation to die in the wilderness and forfeit the right to go into the promised land. If you allow the 10 to be your friends at all times instead of the two that God would have for you to have in your LifePoint small group or in the serve team here at the church, it will impact the, the, the spirit of your marriage, the tone of your marriage, the trajectory of your marriage. So choose the community coin carefully. Number eight, levity. Levity, the joy and the fun and the mirth Right? Proverbs 17, a merry heart does good like medicine, 
but a broken spirit dries the bones. I'm telling you, one of my favorite things about having been married to this beautiful woman for almost 20 years has been just the ridiculous inside jokes that we have. It's my, my favorite thing in the world to make Jenny laugh and to just crack up and just to tell old stories and to, to laugh, and it's just so fun. Like, one of our favorites, you can have this if you want. It's my, our favorite little inside joke. Um, if we're out in public and we're just, we just see, a, like, a, one of God's special children, you know what I'm saying? Like, the person with their like pants hiked up to their nipples, you know, and like a cowboy hat on and like, you know, just, just preposterous. And it, the more serious whatever's going on around us, the better. When we see something like that, one of us will just whisper to the other, you in five years. We just, we love to say that to each other, like at the most ridiculous times. And it's just it, like, like if we like spit water out or something, like you in five years, like it's just, it just gives us great joy. It's just... Because everything's intense and serious, and especially within ministry and pressure and all of these things. So just to have someone you can just laugh with and, and not be cool with, and, and it's just so the levity. So I'm just saying to you in your marriage, we want to take it all seriously, but not white knuckle. Come on, we got to laugh a little bit. A merry heart is good medicine. Let's laugh together with our spouses. Let's collect some inside jokes. Number nine, responsibility. Responsibility. You know, the, the realization that you have the agency, you have the choice, you have the space to take charge, both of you, to make the marriage better, to not be a victim and have the victim mentality that is so easy. Well, if I had the husband so-and-so had, well, then, yeah, the marriage would be good. Well, well, you know, if my wife would do this, then sure. Well, you don't. You have exactly what God entrusted to you. So what are you going to do about it? I'm just hoping something will rise up in you to say, I'm going to make the best of this situation. I'm going to find the good in it. I'm going to enlarge the good in it. And I'm going to believe for God's favor upon it. Come on, let's take responsibility for our marriages. Let's not let just let them be what they are. Let's be good stewards of our marriages. Let's know we're going to stand before God, and hopefully we'll have a fully coined crown to throw at his feet. If we weren't given five coins, fine, be, or five talents, if we were given three or given two or given one, let's not hide them in the ground no matter what we've been entrusted with. Whatever we've been through, whatever miles our marriage has on it, whatever tragedy and trials we've faced, let's take responsibility proactively and be good stewards of what we have. Let's say to ourselves, this marriage won't fail because of me. It might fail, but it's not going to fail because of me. I'm going to best as I can with all my heart, all that's in my space to make a decision about, going to do all that I can to make it thrive. And then number 10, the 10th coin of marriage is authority. Authority. And of course, there's lots of different ways we could take this, but the most important would be God's authority, that we would say to God, I want you to be in charge, that we would say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, I want my kids to know you. I want my wife to thrive in your house. And the only way for me to thrive is for me to plant my roots deep down in the house of the Lord. So we will get ourselves under God's authority. 
Because it's been said before that we will never get to be over what God wants us to be over until we first come under what God wants us to be under. There is power released through surrender. So let's get under God's authority. Let's get our lives under his authority. Let's get our children, let's get our family under the blood. Come on, somebody, under the blood. My, my kids will be saved. My grandkids will be saved in Jesus' name. We are a part of the kingdom of God by the blood of Jesus. Now, I got good news for you. I got good news for you. Day nine of 11, as they were finally on their way home, Ken Mattingly, Charlie Duke, John Young headed home. They had to open up the spacecraft door to get a can of film on the outside of the spacecraft. Ken Mattingly, the one who lost the ring, was going outside. They all had their spacesuits on, of course, helmets on, the whole thing. He's outside, gets the canister, and he's about to come back in when Charlie Duke was on the inside. I interviewed Charlie Duke. I heard, I heard the story from him personally. By the way, Charlie Duke's a Christian who said, going to the moon didn't change my life. That happened later when I met Jesus Christ. So some great bucket list thing can never fill the hole inside your soul, but Jesus can. So Charlie Duke's outside spotting, talking on the, on, the, on the radio. He sees Ken Mattingly out there. And as he's watching this happen, he's, something shiny in his peripheral vision flies, flies by his eye. And he looks to his side, and he realizes realize that's Ken Mattingly's ring. And it's heading straight towards the open spacecraft door, and it's going to be gone forever to the vacuum of space. They are traveling 3,000 feet per second, 50,000 miles from the moon, Okay. And he realizes, I've got one shot and one shot only to reach up and grab this thing as it flies out to the vacuum of space. And so he does. He reaches for it. And he misses. And the ring travels out the open door where it hits the back of Ken Mattingly's helmet and bounces back and comes straight back into the spacecraft. And Charlie Duke grabs it puts it on his pinky, says nothing. And after they all get undressed and ready to go back about their duties, he just casually tosses the ring to Ken Mattingly, goes, look what I found. <laughs> What's the moral of the story? Lost things can be found in Jesus' name. Whatever coins you've lost, they can be recovered. And we thank you, God, for it. We thank you, God, for the recovery of lost sheep, of lost sons, and yes, of lost coins. And thank you that in the Lake Point marriages, Whatever coins have shaken loose from our crowns, your spirit is ready and willing to assist in us rediscovering them so that our joy may be full and that you may receive all the glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. digital.